0: The following message is entitled, Joy Hunting in the Midst of War. This message was given during the evening service on May 8th, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title for tonight from series number three is A Joyful Salvation. The sermon, that's actually the series title. The sermon for tonight is Joy Hunting in the Midst of War. Joy hunting in the midst of war. I read a book years ago by Patton uh, before he was tragically killed post World War II in an auto accident. Made it through the whole um, <laughs> general of uh, major campaigns, Battle of the Bulge, and so forth, and uh, gets killed tragically in an auto accident at the, uh, in Europe. Uh, his chauffeur uh, made a mistake, if I remember right, and they got broadsided and killed. Uh, George Patton, if you remember, was the brilliant uh, general, U.S. general, also a controversial one, for slapping a soldier in a recovery tent because he was weeping and crying and called him a coward. And he was right, but uh, that, and even in that day and age, that was not something that you did. He wrote a book that I enjoyed reading twice. It was called War As I Knew It, War As I Knew It. Um, a lot of the quotes that are famous for that book aren't worth printing and reading to you tonight because he did a lot of commentaries on various issues that aren't germane to the sermon tonight. So I scanned my various files and sources to pick in your note sheet three pertinent quotes from historical figures down through the centuries. And the introduction is entitled War as They Knew It, not what Patton said in his book titled War as I Knew It. Albert Einstein, almost 100 years ago, made a very insightful statement. And uh, this was actually during and after World War II. He said, quote, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. That is an incredibly insightful statement. I don't know if you understand what he's saying there. He doesn't know what weapons World War III is going to be fought, but whatever they are, they're going to be so devastating to the world that it would return the world to basically tribalism where they're fighting with sticks and stones. That's something that many are worried about today with Putin today uh, having his doomsday parade and giving his doomsday speech. And... uh, Russian political individuals and entertainment individuals are begging him to wipe out Britain and to nuke the United States. It's just unbelievable. These people are so wicked. So Einstein certainly was insightful there. G.K. Chesterton, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, he was a world-famous English poet, claimed to be a born-again Christian. I'm not so sure. I read a lot of his writings. He was a philosopher, lay theologian, literary art critic in the 1800s. He said this, Quote, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because of what he loves behind him, End quote. Wow, that's a great quote. Fighting for what we truly believe, family and friends that we're supporting behind us, so to speak. Then a person you've probably never heard of, John Stuart Mill. He was an English philosopher, political economist. He was a member of parliament, a very strong civil servant back in the early 1800s. And his quote is quite insightful about war. Quote War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks that nothing is worth a war, is much worse. Wow. He says, What's worse than war is thinking there's nothing worth fighting for. Great quote. He continues, a man who has nothing with which he's willing to fight for, nothing which he cares more about than he does about his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free. Human beings must be willing when need is to do battle for the one against the other, justice against injustice. In the introduction to your note sheet, and I don't have one in front of me, even though I wrote it, that doesn't mean anything, I don't have it in front of me. Um, I forgot to grab one when I put them on the table, but I think I gave you space there and Here's one of my problems I have with Bible-believing Christianity today, one of many, as you realize. You could say right now, really? You've got a problem with evangelicalism? Boy, that's a shock. That's a surprise, John. Well, that would be sarcastic. You don't want to be sarcastic. It doesn't seem that especially Christian leadership in Western church, Western church would be Europe and America, desires to fight for anything other than maybe political conservatism. It's just not worth fighting for when heresy comes into churches the churches roll over when uh, bible schools entertain heretics and apostasy they just roll over when mission organizations get leadership in that are heretical or apostate they just roll over they just give in just give in just give in when there's rebellious sin among professed believers in the church in churches today congregations just ignore it nobody church disciplines john stuart mill is right War is an ugly thing, but the ugliest of things is not believing there is anything worth fighting a war over. I hate to say this, but I truly believe that evangelicalism is filled to the ranks with cowardice soldiers who aren't willing to fight for anything because it's right and would rather be in churches that are winners, not losers. How many people have not continued in our church because it's too small, Where the people bad area and so forth doesn't matter what's right what matters is that I want to be attached to a growing numerical winner in a nice area we're not willing to fight for what is true it would seem sad to say well unfortunately this series is about we're soldiers and we're suffering and we're at war and that's the sermon title that we're to find joy hunt for joy in the midst of war Point number one in your note sheet then, believers will never find joy unless they do it in a context of warfare. Believers will never find joy unless they do it in a context of Christian warfare. I can say this on the authority of the word of God, you will never and I will never have joy if you are addicted to the idea that Christian life, the Christian life is comfort. Conflict avoidance. Folks, Christianity was born in death and conflict. If Christ carried a cross and tells his followers to do it as well, that's suffering and persecution. Ephesians 6, if you'll turn over there, we are called to be soldiers of the cross. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. These are commands, military commands. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You only put armor on if you're in a war. That passage makes it plain to us that Christians are living lives of suffering and we are in spiritual warfare. You can't avoid it being a Christian is about warfare. It's not about making money, retiring, nice areas, family, fun. That's not Christianity in the Bible. We can subscribe to that, and the church wholesale does subscribe to that in America, but that's subscribing to a false view of Christianity. We can kick our feet and stomp our feet and scratch our heads over that and say, I don't like that, I don't believe that, but it's true true nonetheless. We can't avoid war because it predominantly war begins internally uh, look at Galatians 5 Galatians chapter 5 and I'm just touching on this in the introduction in one of your points I'm gonna come back to this verse but it seems to me in verse 17 that war is going on continuously in a true believer not in false believers not in unbelievers but in true believers in Galatians 5:17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh they are in opposition to one another that's warfare folks okay that's internal warfare. How do you get away from internal warfare? He's talking to believers. Number two in your note sheet. There is no such thing in the Bible as a Christian life of ease. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian life of ease. Simple as that. It doesn't exist. You can't show it to me anywhere. You can, not you, I don't mean you necessarily, but you speaking to the broad spectrum of Christianity can tell me all they want that uh, Christ has come to bring us um, ease, comfort. Some have actually used the idea of peace. <laughs> peace has nothing to do with the lack of suffering and comfort living. Peace has to do with spiritual peace inside in the face of horrifically frightening circumstances, by the way. You don't need peace if life isn't nasty. Number three, one can only find joy in the battlefield of suffering. That's the only place you're going to find it. Can't find it anywhere else. Underneath number three, conflict avoidance will not bring you joy. Can't find it. Does not exist in the Bible. Joy only operates on the battlefield of suffering. And I truly, as I've said, ad infinitum, Latin for infinitely so, most believers will go to the grave rejecting this truth. They will not accept it. They will not believe it. They can affirm it verbally, but they will not believe it as their lives dictate. Their lives dictate, Christians' lives dictate that they are comfort-oriented. They will hunt for joy in a sea of comfort and pleasure and will never find it and will go to their graves looking for a sea, a land of comfort and pleasure in this life. Yet, as the sermon title says, God has called us to the business of joy hunting in the midst of war. Now, as with every perversion in the church that I have run into in writings, of course, heretical, and it tires me, heretical Christian leaders in the American Evangelical Church try to oppose truth at every, every corner of the church today. And there are Christian leaders, point number four, who contest the idea that Christians are at war. And they say, where is the proof of that? Like, are they even reading the same Bible that I am? God wants us healthy. God wants us wealthy. God wants us at peace with life, good jobs. He came to bring us peace and comfort financially. They always appeal to Proverbs may your vats be filled with new wine, and may you always have much food and crops to live by. So they say, Where is the proof? So let's write down some evidences that the Bible speaks to the fact that Christians are at war. And let's start with the verse we just read, which hopefully you're still at, Galatians 5.17. What is warfare for the Christian? Number one, it is warfare in the arena of desire. That's what Galatians 5.17 tells us. War occurs in the arena of desire for every believer. Notice it says, the flesh sets its desire. Sets its desire is one Greek verb in that verse. It's the the word for lust. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. So the flesh's lust is sinful, the spirit's lust, lust is righteous. Epithumia is a morally neutral term that by context determines whether it's sinful lust or righteous lust. Notice they're in opposition to one another. That's a warfare term. They're in opposition. That is a military term. We are at war with ourselves, folks. And we're at war with the Spirit of God. Even as a believer, you're at war with the Spirit of God. Every time your lustful desires rear up, you are fighting against the Holy Spirit. So, where's the proof of warfare? Well, it's internal warfare and desires right there for the believer. Along that line, go to Hebrews 12. We've seen this before. This is all in preference, for preference and prefacing my comments, or all prefacing comments, introductory comments, as we slam back into uh, 1 Peter 1 in a moment. But look at Hebrews 12. Verse 4, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Nobody resists sin to the point where they start bleeding. That means we've never fought our sin natures as much as we should. No one has ever resisted their sin natures the way we should because I've never bled out resisting my sin nature and neither have you. The word resist you have not resisted there in verse 4. It's a warfare term. To continually fight against. Antikathistemi. It means to set down and be in opposition against continuously. You and I are continuously in a war against sin that's in our own hearts. And to forget that and to ignore that is to be in rebellion, as verses 5 to 8 tell us. We'll not go there. So good are Christian leaders that say it's ridiculous. It's so negative. We're not at war with each other. We're not at war. This is Christianity, Christ came to bring abundance and peace and comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Everything is fine. Don't listen to the negative attacks. Well, there's one aspect of war, and I could stop right with that that we've just seen, number one under point four. We're warring against our desires. Warfare also occurs in the church. Can't avoid that, 1 Timothy 6. We've never avoided it. And neither can any other church. 1 Timothy 6. There's always going to be warfare in churches. I mean, heavens, look at the battleground of these churches that the apostles founded in the New Testament. There's no peace and plenty there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 12. What does it say? Fight the good fight of faith. Sounds like a battle going on there, and of course we know the context of 1 Timothy. We're studying it in the middle Sundays of the month. It's about battling and fighting against evil in the church. There's a war going on in the church. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 that I just touched on this morning. Verse 3, I beg you, Timothy, to remain out, in, for, uh, remain out at Ephesus... He wants Timothy to stop in verse 3 of chapter 1, men teaching false doctrines. It always comes back to false teaching, myths, genealogies. Verse 6, for some men's strength from these things have apostatized through fruitless discussions. This is the state of the church when you have two things going on in the church to create warfare. Number one is true Christians are sinners and we're going to sin against each other, you can't avoid it. In thought, word, and deed, we're going to do it at times. And then you throw into that mixed Satan attacking the church, and thirdly, you throw into it apostate or fake Christians who come in, and the only goal of fake Christians is destroy. That's their only goal. So under number four, we war in the arena of desires. Number two, we war in the local church. Where's the proof of Christian warfare? I don't see it in the Bible. I don't know what Bible they're looking at. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 3, some have even tried to twist the whole thing about suffering. Well, it's suffering for cause, the cause of Christ, but it's not, it's not warfare. We'll look at 2 Timothy 2.3. Uh, Paul combines suffering as a soldier in con- concept. Suffer hardship with me as a what? Good soldier. One who never leaves his post even unto death. Quitting is a soldier's motto. Conflict avoidance it is. But, you know, when there's trouble in church, most Christians just quit. We were reading some comments about a church, uh Whiting Baptist Church, Sue and I, this afternoon. We were talking about Whiting Baptist Church for reasons I won't go into, but uh, I guess there are reviews of churches out there. Uh, we looked up our church. Thankfully, the no reviews. If you want to write a one-star review on our church, you have I give you leave. But um, there were reviews. Um, one of these guys was crazy. Anyways, um, the reviews of that church, you know, they're very typical. I mean, they could be a reviews of a bar. Nice atmosphere. Seems like they're working on their struggles. I think this may be a place I'd like to go. What is that? Nothing about truth. Nothing about standing for the word. Nothing about the preaching. Review after review, one to five stars. It's all about clubbing and socializing at church and music. And I, I felt good there. You want to really feel good at church? That's not the place I'd go to feel good. I want to feel good. I'm going to go to McDonald's or the bar. Stage one of backsliding: McDonald's. Stage two of backsliding: Go to the bar. Want to feel good? Go there. We're not here to feel good at war how about walking among the ukrainian soldiers would you like to do that go around be positive soldiers be positive i know this entire side of this block is complete rubble but let's have good feelings now as soldiers good feelings let's all just join together and sing kumbaya mm-hmm. we're at war we can ignore it like stuart mill said in that quote but then we're cowards Number one, war occurs in the year of desires. Number two, war occurs in the church. And number three, war occurs with this world system and with Satan. We're at war. The church, which means believers, are at war with Satan and this world system. Satan is your enemy. You can ignore that if you want, but that's just insanity. Okay, you can ignore it. Did you see that old guy in the 64 years old, that uh, north side? A couple nights ago, I don't know why he's walking out at 3 a.m. I mean, he's 64 years old, you don't walk out at 3 a.m., but he was. You saw that uh, neighbor across the street took the cell phone video of it? He's walking down the street. White sedan pulls up. So he's walking like this. White sedan pulls up on the, and parks behind the corner. Gang member jumps out with a gun. So he's already got the plan. This guy walks along. He comes up and he points the gun at this guy. And the guy, the neighbor that was recording this heard the whole thing. He wanted his cell phone and his money, I guess. Anybody see that video? Well, you're fortunate not to. The old guy was walking along like me, you know, in that kind of shape. The old guy grabs the guy's gun. He's not going to give up his cell phone and his wallet. Caught completely off guard. What do you think going to happen in the city of Chicago if you're walking along at 3 a.m.? What do you think's gonna happen? Christians are like that. Well, I came to church. I I didn't expect any trouble. Really? We're at war. And we got an enemy we can't even see. So the gangbanger strategically knew what he was doing. As the guy hangs onto the gun in the air, he's walking backwards and he's pulling him back to the corner because his buddy sees that his buddy's in trouble, jumps out of the car, throw him to the ground, pump him full of bullets dead at the hospital later. Now that happened for two reasons. That man was a fool walking in the city of Chicago at 3 a.m. alone. And he was looking down. He never saw this car pull around and slow down. He was not prepared. And also, that situation was bad because there were wicked forces that will kill anyone for anything. Why do we think that we can get away with a Christian life of ease and not face enemies? We saw it in Ephesians 6. Look at 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. War occurs because there are forces of evil in this world. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? I don't understand this, I, I thought Jesus and me, I just, I just thought Jesus and me, you know. You know, walking through the garden, thing was going to be fine, I don't understand why I have problems in my life like this. Really? You're not at war? Hmm. Verse 13 is why. Because evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Where's that? That's not the gangbangers, that's in the church. Imposters. Procopto Deceiving to wander like a planet. To pretend to be a planet when it's not. That's what the word planato means. It's from our word planet. The word planet used to mean, as I've taught you before, means to wander. So scientists would see these bodies go across the sky and they'd say, Well, there's no rhyme or reason to it. They're just wandering across the th- sky. I will call it a planato, a planet. To roam. That's what deceiving is. That car was roaming, as the commentator said on Channel 7 the other night, that car just roams around at the city that time of night, roaming around looking for a sucker, someone to attack. And they're in the church, in verse 13. Deceiving and being deceived. So not only are the criminals, the purpose are the deceivers, and they're also deceived. In Incredible. Imposter is the word for a juggler, a sorcerer, a cheat. You can't get away from it. You and I are to focus on the Word of God in verse 14. So many Christian leaders, point number four, contest the idea that Christians are at war. They say, Where's the proof? Excuse me? Do I need to really repeat these things to these people? Are they not reading the Bible? Uh, by the way, the word persecuted, the word persecuted in verse 12, diako it means to put the flight, to aggressively chase down, hunt like a killer. That's a military phrase for what is being done to us as Christians. We're being hunted down, hunted down. Satan knows where we're at, Satan knows our church, Satan knows you, Satan knows me if you're a believer. And, uh, and I'm not referring to you, I'm saying the church in general. For believers, he knows who we are, and that word persecuted means to hunt down, to kill. We're talking about targeting somebody, just like those two criminals did. Hmm. We should have our eyes wide open. We should know what we are. We are have an enemy when we got converted. This isn't about a life of ease. To live a life of ease means you don't have an enemy. To not have an enemy means that we're not saved. That's why one of the great eight wills of God is that you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our passage where we're transitioning into the issue of suffering now. Suffering is warfare, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've seen the issue of in this you greatly rejoice even though now, verse 6 of 1 Peter 1, If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. We've seen the issue of this, and I'm trying to teach to you this issue of rejoicing. And I was trying to get to the issue of the surgeon Peter last Sunday night opens up and gives us an incredible surgical look at a unique word for joy, which is greatly rejoiced there. And so we pick that up tonight and then go into suffering. And I said at the end of the sermon last Sunday night, hopefully you and I are going to learn some things about joy very quickly, that are beyond what we thought it was. In verse 6, so in your note sheet, what is the nature of Christian joy? You greatly rejoice. Agaliaste, it's present middle indicative. You yourself, middle means you yourself need to do this. Present tense means this is continuously you are to greatly rejoice. Middle voice, the action is by you. Voice refers to action in any verb. Tense voice and mood is very simple. Tense tells us time or duration. Voice tells who's doing the action. And mood tells us whether it's just a fact that's occurring, an action that's occurring, or whether it's a question or whether it's a command. So this is how this reads. You are to continuously, present tense, middle voice, choose yourself to be greatly rejoicing, indicative, because this is the fact of your life. This is an intensive form of the word joy. Agaliao, to abundantly be uplifted, not based on circumstances. The way you could translate this one word for joy, which is greatly rejoiced there, would be super Christian joy. It's like what Peter is saying is, I'm not going to take anything from anyone who claims to be a Christian. You can talk to me all you want about half-hearted joy. I'm going to tell you that as the suffering increases, you're to have super joy increase. So alien to the church today. This word was never used in secular Greek, nor does this verb greatly rejoice in verse 6 occur in Paul's writings. Peter coins it. He's the surgeon. He's opening up the cavity in the In the body, as we saw last, the surgeon looks at joy, and he's the one telling us this. And the reason I started the sermon tonight on the issue of suffering is what Peter is saying is, as you are being hunted down and persecuted, your great joy should be increasing. And we just will not accept that proposition. I have a right to be discouraged and depressed. You do not understand the things that are going on in my life. And Peter would not take that from anybody. I've had to take it in counseling. You have no idea what's going on in my life. You can tell me all, I want, all you want that I should be joyful, John, but you have no clue what's going on in my life. And Peter would say this. If it's getting worse, your joy should be increasing. That's what he would say. None of this. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, don't, I, I can't relate to that. I guess it's really bad in your life. Yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know what's going on in your life. I guess you have a right to be depressed. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, you do. I can understand that. I, I empathize with you. That's not what Peter's doing. He's saying, you greatly increase super joy even though you are being distressed, hunted down, persecuted, suffering. This is what I said last Sunday night when I said that a surgeon cuts open joy. Their medical students would back away from that and say, are you kidding me? The more I'm in pain and suffering, you're telling me that my joy is to increase? I don't see the correlation there John common sense would say as hardships get worse in my life I should crash Peter is saying as hardships get worse I should increase in joy. my whole purpose in pointing that out last Sunday night was to show us how far we are from this level of maturity It's rarer than gold in the church, I would say. Mm -hmm. So, perspective number one on joy is super confidence or growing, encouraged confidence. That's what joy is super confidence, growing, encouraged confidence in our precious salvation and protecting Savior. The worst life gets is basically the idea. The worst life gets. And the cries that are raised quietly in the choir loft of evangelicalism today would be things like this. That's ridiculous. Who could possibly do that? I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense. All those statements are attacks, direct attacks against the truthfulness of God's word. Right? Isn't it plain in verse 6? Greatly rejoice. Have super joy even though you're suffering. So the worse the war gets the more your joy is to increase right and and christians by and large would say that's nuts that's crazy that i couldn't possibly do that all those statements are saying well then god is nuts god is crazy because his word says that he's nuts he's crazy he has no idea what i'm going through that's pagan that's acting like an unbeliever don't shoot the messenger i'm just telling you what the verse says Don't ask me if I've arrived on this. Of course I have not. But the one thing I'm not going to do is say this is crazy and nuts. I'm going to say instead this is humbling. In our wicked little hearts we can think, oh, I've got a pretty good handle on this Christian life after all these years. No, I haven't. Not if I'm not living out verse 6. I've kind of had this idea in my life, maybe in yours, that I have some joy at times when I'm suffering, but really ratchet up the pressure, persecution, and suffering And I'm expected to grow in joy, commensurate with the growing persecution. Hmm. That's not how Christians operate today. Underneath that perspective, number one, number one, it's one thing to not be depressed during severe trials, but quite another to be exceedingly joyful during trials. That's what God expects Spirit of God wrote this. He expects you and I. We are failing in the area of joy if the exceeding joy doesn't increase with the trials. Now, what blows off verse 6 is is the question, how how on earth do I do that? He just gave the answer at the beginning of verse 6. It's like, You are on a medieval rack and being tortured for your faith as the torture is cranking the gears, and eventually your arms and legs are gonna pull out. To be quartered, as they used to say, to tear your body into pieces. And as the as the sheer agony of the pain and the pulling of your joints is going out, you're laughing exceedingly and uplifted and rejoicing. How is that possible? It's this. I'm coming, Lord. I'm coming at any minute. This will be over and I'll be in heaven. How this occurs is what he says at the beginning of verse 6. As you are suffering more and more for your faith, and we haven't even gotten to that issue, how little we really do suffer for the faith. We're stripped of everything in this world. Everything. Everything. And all we can think about is I'm saved and I want to go to heaven. I'm saved and I want to go to heaven. I don't want this anymore. This is terrible. This life is terrible. It's no good. This is a world of sin and warfare. I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And that's what brings joy. Lord Jesus, come. Please, come. Heaven. This is what brings joy. And it's not good enough to just say I'm not depressed. God wants joy, not just absence of depression. Doesn't, because we can do this. We can just shut our emotions off and just be like Robotic. As I said a couple sermons ago, it's like being Vulcan, you know, no emotions. It's not good enough. Number two, the only thing that can turn depression to joy is contemplation of our salvation in eternity. That's what Peter's saying. But if we're so in love with this world, we're going to be devastated by suffering. The only thing that can turn depression to joy is the contemplation of our salvation in eternity. Longing for it, wanting it, rejoicing in it, losing all value in this world. Luke 24. Luke 24, post-resurrection, verse 10. Now, they were they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So, they were telling them about the resurrection. And they didn't believe it. Verse 11. Luke 24, verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. They would not believe them. You see... When I refuse to have joy as suffering grows, I don't believe God's word. God's word is nonsense. Even though the resurrection was preached to them repeatedly. Verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home marveling at what happened. So he went from, this is nonsense, to marveling. He saw the empty tomb, he's believing. It is faith in God and his word. When the word says you are to have increasing joy in the midst of suffering, we are supposed to believe it and submit to it. Or we think God's word is nonsense. Have you ever repented of God's word being nonsense to God? Christ on the Emmaus Road runs into some of the apostles. Verse 32. Their eyes were open, and they recognized Christ in verse 31. And they said to one another in verse 32 of Luke 24, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining to us the scriptures? This holy revival is occurring. That's incredible, isn't it? The scriptures were explained. They believed the scriptures and their lives were transformed. Verse 52 of Luke 24. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with what? What? And they were continually in the temple praising God what is the driving force of this joy a personal growing relationship with the resurrected Savior knowing he exists knowing he's in control knowing that he is running our lives and all suffering is part of his plan for our lives you don't have to figure out why something is bad in your life you just accept that that's part of your life as a soldier you submit to suffering And hardship, whether it's related to your faith or not, it's supposed to be happening according to our faith, but even the hardships of life were to submit that way. John chapter 21, verse 1. John chapter 21, post resurrection again. John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. So he's renounced his calling right there. Peter has denied actually Jesus four times in the Gospels, three times until the cock crowed, and now a fourth time, I'm going, I'm going fishing. He's denying his call. Do you see that? He was called I you to be fishing as men he's just denying he's, he's this is what believers can do they face despair and suffering they just say that's it I'm done I'm gonna go fish I'm gonna do what I want to do gotta let you do that verse three they said to him we will also come with you you can actually lead others into such doom by your life and by your actions and by your words you can tell others by your life and actions and words that you've had it with your Christian faith and you can lead others away and astray as well So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. They were actually not only renouncing the call of God, but they were persevering all night in the calling that God did not give them, fishing. They were enduring. Verse 4, When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? That's an understatement. He prevented them from getting fish. And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So Peter, who led them all astray in verse 3, I'm going fishing, now understands something that most Christians don't understand. God controls both the empty net and the full net. Park your thoughts on that idea for a while. If your life feels empty, God is the one who makes it feel empty. And he's the one that fills it up. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter didn't even know that. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. He can't wait to get to Christ. He can't wait. just can't wait. The only way that you can be in God's will is to run toward him. The only way that you can have joy is to, in your mind, run towards Christ in the midst of all suffering and persecution. There's no other cure for depression than the contemplation of the security of our eternal inheritance, of the greatness of our God and Savior. Only the godly have first love for Christ. Only the godly walk by the Spirit. Only the godly have great joy. This is the only way the scriptures say our joy can grow with persecution. It's to run towards Christ. To get to him. To fellowship with him in his word. to Pray to him. To rest in him. To trust him. To accept your calling that you're a soldier of the cross and you're going to suffer. This is the only way. Since godless living robs a believer of love for Christ as well as an assurance of salvation for eternity, and spiritual rebellion robs a believer of his joy as well. There is no joyful, backslidden Christian. There is no such thing. MacArthur says genuine salvation and true joy belong together and are not limited to heavenly inhabitants. Peter's goal in 1 Peter 1.6 in this text is to have believers understand the joy that you should be, that should be their own constant expression in light of eternal salvation. Let me say that again. Peter's goal in this text is to have believers understand the joy that should be their own constant expression in light of eternal salvation. Salvation joy is not some brief, shallow, circumstantial emotion, MacArthur says, but rather something permanent and profound, tied closely to the blessed spiritual blessings of faith, hope, and love, and given by God through his Son and the Holy Spirit. So, folks... The hunting down persecution has nothing to do with us not having joy. Nothing. It all comes back to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Discouragement, depression, which is the opposite of joy, fear, which is the opposite of peace, these are commodities in our lives that tell us we have very little, if any, relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Own up to it. God expects us to be joy hunting in the midst of warfare. Father, as we conclude tonight and leave these seats in front of us, dear Lord, in this church until Wednesday or next Sunday, and most of our time, Lord, is spent outside of this building. Most of our time is not spent around each other. It is so vital, dear Lord, since we're only taught two, maybe three times a week, from the word, at least in an all-church context, it is so vital that we learn these truths and fixate on them when we're alone with you each day of each week in our walks with you. We confess and repent before you and ask your forgiveness that so we do not know what it is like to have increased great joy in the face of increasing suffering. In fact, most believers, Lord, as you know and I know and most of us here would know, aren't even suffering for the faith. Rarely witness, if ever. Rarely serve to such a degree that they will suffer for it. And so we really don't know what it's like to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So we're not even on this suffering page that when suffering for your name grows, we should have joy. We're not even there yet because we're not even fulfilling the will of God in that area. It's great lacking here. As you know, Lord, somebody once said to me as a Christian, frustrated with this type of preaching, This person said to me, she said to me, don't you have anything ever good to say about the body of Christ? And my answer to her was, no. There is nothing good that I can say about myself. Because the Bible says, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And I have to hone up. And take responsibility for the fact, Lord, that I am a terrible sinner even as a believer. And the only thing that is righteous and good in me is not me. It's not fellow believers. It's you in us and you who has given us the Holy Spirit. That person was tired of hearing how bad they were. Tired of being told that they were terrible sinners. They wanted me to turn the corner. Positive affirmation. You're good. You're all right. I don't know how I can do that in the face of texts like 1 Peter 1.6, dear Lord. If we're going to be completely truthful about ourselves, how do we turn a positive spin on the fact, dear Lord, that first we're supposed to be suffering greatly for our faith when we rarely witness and serve at convenience. How is that anything positive? And then we're supposed to be positive and turn a positive spin on the fact that If we do get hammered for the faith, we tend to crash and burn into discouragement and depression and fear. How do we find a golden lining in that? This requires you to intervene in our lives with a great renewal and revival that requires us first to see how completely lacking we are and living out the powerful Christian life of joy. And when we see how lacking we are, maybe we will be broken like pottery and then rebuilt and restored to a proper understanding of the Christian life, which is not about this world. It's about you. No one can bring about such a miraculous change in a human's life, certainly not this sermon, certainly not me. I pray for revival in the church and in our church, like we have never seen, Lord. In areas like this that are even possibly beyond comprehension for believers who listen to this sermon, completely befuddles and confuses them because they have never experienced it. Only you can transform our thinking, help us. Forgive us, in Jesus' name, amen.